So this week I started reading this book, and if we're friends on Facebook, you might have seen me share a quote or two from this book this week, but it's a book called None Like Him uh, by this gal, Jen Wilkin, and I think it's just, it's already a really good book, really enjoy it. If you want to read it, I would highly encourage you to, uh, but the, the primary kind of thrust of the book uh, is to talk about God, right? It's, it's kind of to, to focus in on who God is, what his attributes are, what does it mean for us to kind of stare at these things and worship God in the midst of his character and his traits and his life and what he's done. And so man, I don't think we can do that enough. Uh, in fact, the elders of this church, about last year, I think it was, uh, we read a book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, uh, and that is kind of like none like him, but a bit longer. So there's like 26, I think, attributes in Tozer's book. There's only 10 that she really focuses on in this book. And, and here's why I bring this up, is because I find it so important for us to constantly revisit who God is, like to constantly take time to gaze intentionally on the character of God and what he's done because we easily forget it, miss it, or are distracted by other things. And so what we've tried to do intentionally in this series is say we're doing this what child is this thing, a study in the sonship of Jesus, and not a ton of it is all that new. Like unless you're here and maybe you're newer to the faith or you're here and you're not a Christian, and if that's your story, thank you for coming and we love that you're here. We'd love to get to know you. But if that's your story, maybe this won't sound super familiar. Uh, but, but for many of us, the, the birth story of Jesus, God's power, right? Like, son of David, son of God, like these things we've heard if we've read through our scriptures. Uh, but, but we do this intentionally. We're going to constantly kind of revisit and gaze upon Jesus over Advent season. Okay? And so um, the reason why I brought up that book is uh, right towards the beginning, there's this uh, hymn that she shares. And I had, honestly, I'd never heard of it. And, uh, and it's about 100 years old. It's by this guy, Frederick Lehman, and I want to read the last verse of it, and, and it'll be up on the screen as well. I want you to follow along with me as I read it aloud. I just thought it was just so incredibly beautiful, um, and if you're looking for it, it's underneath the Matthew text, if, uh, if it's just the first few slides of the Matthew text, so the Matthew text, the one that's just, one that says Matthew. There it is. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Everybody, Hannah, Hannah, everybody. Oh, Hannah's question. She's doing really good. Sorry if I kill. I love you. You're the best. Okay, so here we go. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. So, so here, here I'm, I'm reading this, right? Like I'm reading this book and I come across this, this verse and this hymn that I've never heard before and I, I literally just start to like well up in tears. Like, like I get this like emotional reaction and if you know me, this is not normal, right? So I was like, okay, something is happening um, and, and it was my affections for Jesus, my affections for God were wrapped up in the love of God and this the imagery that's created here. Um, and again, is this, is the love of God something I haven't studied, something I don't pray about, something I don't ask for, something I don't know? Absolutely not. It's, it's stuff I pour into, but man, it's this movement of my heart to connect with what is real. It's a movement from what is just often mental ascent to what is true about God to coming from here into here where transformative work of the Spirit happens. And that was a moment for that. 
Uh, and so we're going to do something different. We don't do this here like ever, but I'm going to call us to do it now. I want us to just for a minute, and it's going to be silent in here, which is always weird, I know, uh, but we're going to be kind of silent, and I want you guys to just read over this, and I want you to think and to pray and to meditate and just take a moment to reflect on God, through the love of God, through who he is, uh, maybe it's to you, but whatever, in the context of this, allow your heart to connect with it, and then, and then we'll, we'll jump back in. And so let's just take a minute to do that. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, for every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. What if, right, just, just dream with me for a second, like, what if the church, and I don't mean redemption, I, I mean, like, what if God's people, not just here in Flagstaff, but around the world bought into this as real? Like, what if we truly, like, experienced and believed that the love of God was worth that type of admiration? That literally, if we all could just spend all day writing and writing and writing and writing and writing and writing, that we could not contain the amount of the love of God. Like, like what, what would that mean for us? What about our security, our justification, our health, our understanding of how what it means to love each other? Does that not influence and have implication in everything? And so the question is, why are we so easily distracted from something this beautiful? And so let me, let me finish the story. And so um, I'm reading this book. I'm in tears, right? Um, and then what pops up on my cell phone but a notification that Bitcoin had gone up another thousand bucks, Okay? Does anyone else find this Bitcoin craze right now? Like, if you don't know what Bitcoin is, good, because it's crazy. Essentially, it's this cryptocurrency type thing, which doesn't mean anything to me, but it's this digital re thing that you kind of buy, but you don't, and you can mine it, which is weird. I don't know what that means. Anyway, Josh got me into it. Um, it started at like, if you bought this like three, four months ago, it was like $1,600 for a Bitcoin. It's now worth 20 grand, right? So if you put $1,600 into one of these things three months ago, you'd now have $20,000, right? Like that's, that's kind of the reality. So people own tons of these things. So I've got these alerts on my phone because I'm just so interested in what's going on. And here's what's happening is here I am so immersed in the love of God, like, like weeping, like so intentionally engaged with my God. And then I get this notification that Bitcoin's gone up another thousand bucks and I cannot pull myself away from my phone, right? Like, like, and, 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 and like, and I did it, and I scrolled it. You know what I mean? And then, and then I came back like 15 minutes later, and I just, and I stepped back for just a moment. I was like, 
what a waste. Like that did nothing for me. Like this new information I have about something I don't understand, giving me money, I don't, I don't even have one, right? So it's not like it matters whatsoever. And yet it was enough to tug my heart away from an intimate moment with the Savior of the world who died and rose for me. Like what is my issue? And that's just one. And they happen day after day, moment after moment. We so, can be so immersed in who God is and yet get pulled away. And so the reason why I say this again is to implore us to constantly come back to who is God, what has he done, and why does he deserve worship, so that our hearts will be less inclined to worship lesser things, okay? which we unfortunately often and often do. So today we continue on in our, uh, our sonship series, What Child Is This?, looking at Christ through the Advent story, uh, and we've gone through Son of God. Last week, Anthony did Son of Man. This week, we're looking at Son of David, and then and next week for Christmas Eve, for those who will be here, uh, we'll just be here, 9 a.m., no evening service, 9 a.m. next week for Christmas Eve. Uh, we'll be doing Son of Mary and really just kind of delving into the birth story, which will be a lot of fun. But today, Son of David. Now, um, when you think David, especially if you are a Jew, right? Like if you're a Jew and you start hearing David, um, you have kind of this contradictory relationship with David as the king because David as the king is kind of known as the king, the man after God's own heart, right? Which is, which is a good thing, right? Like he made a ton of mistakes, but always his heart seemed to be inclined towards God, right? Um, but when you begin to think the son of David, it gets a little more murky because David's lineage wasn't great for Israel. Uh, if you've studied through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and you've just, excuse me, had an opportunity to look at the lineage of David through history, it is not good. Like it's chock full of people, kings that are supposed to move people to God, literally like dragging them to other gods, right? and causing calamity to fall upon them. And so for the Jew, it's kind of this, well, son of David, is that really this great title? But, but what you get in the Old Testament to redeem some of that, intentionally, I think, by God, is some prophecy, is some Old Testament scripture, prophets who would talk about the son of David to be the one that is to come that will redeem the broken lineage, that will redeem the broken stories of the kings of Israel and bring about goodness and flourishing and peace and all these amazing things. And so even if you go to the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the son of David 17 times in the New Testament, right? So this is, this is a title for Christ that we get often. And so let me reread the text uh, that was read just a few minutes ago in Matthew 20, 29 through 34, where we see this name show up. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So, okay, let, let's, if we can, right, I, I don't know how many Jews we have here in the room, right, but if you're not one, let's try and step foot into this story. Okay, let's try and be kind of a New Testament Jew right now. And, you, and now you're laying on the side of the road blinded, right? And, and you cannot see Jesus. You don't know he's coming. Maybe you hear the commotion. People have told you, hey, this guy, Jesus is coming, and he's this. He's the son of David. And so what you have is these two blind men sitting on the side of the road, 
in hope and anticipation of restoration. And so they call out to the one they cannot see, Son of David, have mercy on us. Heal us. Fix this. And he does. You see, what's wrapped up in this exclamation is not just this random name. This is not me saying, hey, Cosmo, come help me with something at the house, right? This is saying, hey, 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 Jesus, hey, Messiah, hey, Savior, hey, the one that we've heard about, that has been prophesied about, that everyone has talked about for a thousand years, like that guy, please come and heal me. And I long for that longing and that anticipation and that expectation of God because we know who he is. Like, like it's, listen, if you're here and you're a Christian, there shouldn't be, like, we know he's the savior of the world. We know that, we, and here's what, we know that because he died and he rose from the dead and he said he would do it. And so we know who this guy is. It's, it's not, we're not blinded and kind of just, it's, it's not this like rant, it's this hopeful expectation and I long for that for us and for the church. And we be those people because we know who God is, but we need to continue to gaze and stare upon him. So I'm going to pray again. And I want to pray for our eyes to be open, even spiritually this morning, that in ways that maybe we've been blinded or we cannot see God, if it's our own barriers we've created, if it's things that's been done to us that, are, that shroud in cloud who God is, let's ask him to, to at least meet us and, and remove some of that because that's just real. So let's pray. God, we come to you again because there's probably nothing better we can do than talk to you and ask for you to come and to change us and to reveal to us more of yourself. God, I, I, I confess my own just things, God, that, that block my vision and cloud my vision. And Lord, we know, as you even tell us in your word, God, that this world will only get to see kind of into a mirror dimly but in the future we will see clearly and forever. But Lord, we pray that you would kind of move that pattern along and that we would see you in deeper, more beautiful ways this morning. So Son of David, we pray to you right now to have mercy on us and open our eyes, that we would see you as, as sovereign, Savior, Messiah, King of our lives, and that we'd live accordingly. Jesus, again, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you to work. Change us, because we can't change ourselves. Amen. So let's go back in time. Let's do a little history, right? So to understand the depth of why this meant so much for uh, the Jew, but it's going to mean so much for us as well. We need to know the story a little bit, okay? And so um, if you go back to 1 Samuel, here's what's going on in 1 Samuel. Back in the Old Testament, up to this point, God, right, Yahweh, has been their king, right, has been the one that the people of Israel were to look to, were to revere, would lead them into battle, would grant them victory. Everything was about him, but as Israel did for much of the New Testament, they had kind of ears that were tickled and eyes that were kind of kindled towards things that were not of Israel. So they saw other nations and what, saw what they had. Uh, they, they saw these people and saw what they had, and they began to kind of want some of it. And one of the things that they began to covet was a human king for themselves. 
And so they said, man, they go to Samuel, the prophet, and they say, man, we want a king. Like, let's get a king in here. We need a king like all the other nations, right? That in the same way that he rules over them, they, we'd have one that rules over us. And Samuel's like, no, you have a king, and the king is, is God. The king is Jesus, right? Like, this, this is the king. He is the son. Now, let me be very clear in this. When we say Jesus, Jesus was the name given to him when he took on flesh. But the son existed way before the incarnation, before the advent, the Son was there. Like He was existing in the beginning. All things were made through Him, for Him, and by Him, per Colossians 1. And so the Son's been there the whole time. As Anthony said last week, He humbled Himself to take on flesh. And so the King of Israel was who we know as Jesus. Jesus, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, God was the King of Israel. And yet they say, now we need something better than the one that made them. And so then they seek out a king, and, and so Samuel goes to God, and he says, hey, they want a king, they're being fools, what do you think? And God's like, you know what, let them have it. Let's give them a king. And so they give him this guy Saul, they appoint this guy Saul, who honestly like, starts off pretty good. It seems like, hey, this is going to go pretty well. Um, and then sin, right? Uh, and then disobedience, and then idolatry, and then on and on and on. And so the king begins to turn his head away from God of the Bible, Yahweh, the Jewish God, unto other gods, and leads the people astray to the point where then God intervenes and says, you know what, Saul's not my guy, we need to appoint someone else. And there was this little shepherd boy that maybe you've heard the story growing up in church about the little shepherd boy named David that conquered and slayed Goliath, right? That little shepherd boy grows up, grows in stature, and fame and becomes the king of Israel. Okay, and so, so this lineage of kings moves from one family to this next family. Now, this is a big transition, okay, because Jesus is not known as the son of Saul, right? He's known as the son of David. So this transition from Saul to David is an important one. So now David, as the king of Israel, ushers in the golden age of Israel. Like it's most prosperous time, him and his son as David, a heart inclined towards God, even amidst mistakes, draws the people unto God, okay? So this is a, a good season. So again, everyone kind of loves David. It's the subsequent lineage that tends to go poorly. So towards the end of his life, we get the first prophecy that we'll look at. And, and all wrapped up in Son of David is a ton of this Old Testament prophecy, this, hey, this is what's going to come. This is what's going to come, right? So that's where we're going to go. So towards the end of his life for David, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16 says this, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, when this first comes, when Samuel first gives this to David, David is probably thinking of one of his actual sons, probably Solomon, who goes on to be the successor of the king of Israel, right? Well, here's the benefit of living in 2017, right, and not 950, right, is that we have the opportunity to look back and say, well, how did this go for Solomon? Did his reign and his kingdom last forever? No, right? Did he consistently walk with the Lord? No. And so we can understand there's probably a deeper level of prophetic intention here. That he wasn't just talking about Solomon in the temporal moment, talking eternal, long-term vision for the future. 
that there would be another king to come whose throne would be established and would reign forever. Who, although would not commit iniquity himself, would have iniquity laid upon him and then would be beaten and abused and take on the stripes of men, per Isaiah 53, and every narrative of the death of Christ. So we get this, this first kind of vision, right? This first, this first prophecy from Samuel to say, man, no, there's one coming that's even greater. The son of David, someone in this lineage, David, someone, one of your kin will come and do this, right? So this, this sets up, I think, this anticipation for Israel. That Israel's like, man, we liked David, but this is only going to get better. This is fantastic. And so let's keep going. The next one we need to look at is about 250 years later when Isaiah the prophet is prophesied. Now, kind of context of this, the, the already we're talking 250 years mostly of terrible kings that have drawn the people away from God. There's a handful in there that are, that are pretty good. Josiah was great, but the rest were terrible, okay? Um, and so 250 years, Isaiah is prophesying in the midst of kind of this impending conquering uh, by the Assyrian nation over the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? Uh, and so he says this in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, the throne of David, right? David's, David's long, he's gone, right? And so what we have here, again, is this, it's, it's clearly not just talking about David, there's something bigger, a prophetic vision for one who is to come. Now, I want you, again, put yourself in, in kind of the, the, the shoes, the feet of the Jew here. So you, you were really excited at 2 Samuel, because there was this great king that was already reigning, you like David, uh, and then there was this one that was to come that was even better than him. But then you fast forward 250 years later, and now the kingdom is almost in ruins. The people have left God behind. And you're saying, wait a minute, Isaiah, like this hasn't gone well for us. And I think what God's doing is he's coming, he's trying to reassure, no, like there is one coming. Do not lose hope. Someone is on the way who will be a wonderful counselor, right? who will be a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. Like there is one who is still en route. Do not lose heart. 150 years after that. Jeremiah, the next kind of major prophet we get. Now here's what's going on in the context of that. Now the northern nation has been conquered. Now the southern nation of Judah, right now they are about to be taken over, or probably at this point actually are taken over by Babylon. And most of them are driven into captivity in Babylon, right? So this is their context now. Outside their land, outside their home, without possession and just lost, wondering, God, what are you doing? How come you said in 2 Samuel this, but then you gave us even better news that there was still one to come? You tried to keep rolling us in. Where are you at? Jeremiah 33, 20 through 26. And we're going to skip a few in there just for uh, consistency and time's sake. Verse 20 says, As thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time. Then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. 
and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. Thus says the Lord, verse 25, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and fixed the order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. So again, I think if, you, if you're an Old Testament Jew and you've seen the northern kingdom already taken over, now the southern kingdom is also taken over, you're living in captivity, right? You've seen friends die. God, where are you? You promised these things. And he comes in through Jeremiah and gives another reassurance and says, listen, the only way this doesn't go down the way that I've told you is if you think the sun won't rise tomorrow. As confident as you are that when you lay your head down tonight, that tomorrow morning the sun will rise, that same amount of certainty, you can be sure I'm at work and someone's coming to bring about deliverance. And the implications of this, listen, not, not even just for the Jew, but I mean for all of us to just say, man, in this moment of God, where are you? To say, he's like, no, listen, like I'm here and I'm present and I'm coming. And if I feel distant, don't worry, I'm going to span and close that gap for you because I'm always for you and I love you. And that love spans the skies. If that, if maybe that's where you're sitting this morning, but I know probably the Jews probably were, God, where are you? He says, listen, this is happening. This is coming. And you just think about the building anticipation amongst the people of God, longing and awaiting this coming Messiah and Savior. And then to our last prophet, another, but not too much later, about maybe 10 years, I'm not sure the exact date, 10 to 20 years of this prophecy, but Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 34, 22 through 24, it says this. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, and I have spoken. So, so, okay, some years later now, they're like, Ezekiel, where is God? What is happening? We're not delivered yet. What, what is going to happen to us? And he says, well, thus says the Lord. And he will come and he will appoint one, the prince, the son of David, that will reign on the throne, the same one from 2 Samuel, the same one from Isaiah 9, the same one from Jeremiah 33. Like this guy, he's coming and he's going to feed you. Like, do you notice this pattern? I love this, right? This pattern from 2 Samuel, it's kind of this 35,000 foot level view of God, right? Like he's this big, he's, he's coming, he's going to establish this throne and this kingdom. And you get to Isaiah and it's like, you know, but he's, he's also this wonderful counselor, right? He's this mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father. So it kind of comes down a little bit. And then, and then you, get into, you get into Jeremiah and he's like, let me just assure you of how, how sure I am this is coming, right? And then we get down to this, this last level in this prophecy of Ezekiel that the son of David's going to come and feed his people. Like, what, 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 in, at least in my mind, and I think maybe God intentionally did this because he's brilliant, but just this slow descending of God into our world through prophecy, saying, It's coming. It's coming. I promise. It's coming. Just, just hang. Have hope. Stay endure. It's coming. As he brings himself from heaven to earth because we could not span the other direction. 
And so he comes down and his prophecies get closer and nearer to us in the way he cares and his love is manifest. Until, in just a moment before we get to that. So I'll let you guys know this story. We share it a decent amount because it's kind of just that seminal story in my wife and I's life where we just experienced some pain and hardship. And, and so, um, but I want to share the story. Some parts maybe you know, and then some other parts as it pertains for us this morning. I'll try to be quick with it for time's sake. But um, about four years ago, three, four years ago, so my wife and I lost our first kid in a miscarriage. And, and it was a, just a devastating time for us. Like all the hope wrapped up in, in having a child and all of our friends were having kids. And it was just this really exciting moment. And, and I know some of, of the women in here and husbands in here, like you've, You've lived that, and man, I like grieve with you because I know that pain in different ways kind of still sticks, you know. Um, but so that happens about three or four years ago, um, and what happens after it is is they begin to run some tests, and they find out that that my wife uh, she has uh, this thing called a septum that's in her uterus, right? Uh, and they say that because of the presence of that thing, it kind of takes our chance of conceiving a healthy uh, uh, son or or daughter down to twenty percent right? And so we think to ourselves, like, well, we're hanging it up, man. We're not going to try and 20%. Like, I love God. I hope in God, but that's just not, we're not going for that. And so they go in to do this surgery to kind of look at exactly, get some imaging and stuff of what's going on in there. And we had some people pray over us and, and say some things. And about two weeks, I think about two weeks before we're to go in there, a dear friend of ours uh, here at the church comes to my wife and says, uh, hey, I had this dream last night. I don't know what it means. And she says, in the dream, you went to the doctor. They were doing their little scan and imagery and all that stuff. Um, and they came back into the waiting room where you and, you and Vince were waiting. And they just said to you word for word, you didn't even have to come in here today. There's nothing wrong. Okay. And so they share that story with us. You know, she shares that story with, with my wife. And my wife's like, oh, you know, whatever, like no big deal. Because we had seen the image, right? Like they showed us the image and there was this big spike in the middle of my wife's uterus. And so we go and it's time for them to kind of do this little surgery and, and take some pictures and get up there. And I'm waiting in the waiting room. And they call me back because she's now post-op, you know, coming down from the drugs and the anesthetics. And I come in, and she's just kind of in this mixture of delirium, of laughing and crying, and, you know, like the dentist kid and stuff like that. Um, and so I'm just making jokes and laughing, because that's what I do, and she's really upset about it. And, um, and all of a sudden, our doctor walks in. She says, hey, guys, you didn't even have to come in here today, because there's nothing wrong. Right? And I'll never forget the moment when I look at my wife, and it had been a long season of trial for us. We're welling up in her eyes, tears, and she says, God loves me. And, and just that moment has like, to this day, right, is just so heavy. Now, here's why I share that part of the story. Because about three months later, four months later, we got pregnant again. Well, Verity got pregnant again. I didn't get pregnant. Uh, so Verity got pregnant. She did all the work, okay? Uh, and so Verity gets pregnant again. And as you can imagine, there's some, there's some fear. There's some hesitancy. Is this going to work? Around week eight, I'm sitting in my home office. Verity comes running upstairs, kind of heavy on the stairs, right? I can tell it's intense. She comes upstairs, 
and she's bawling. She crawls into my lap, and she just says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just, like, weeping. And she didn't have to say anything. Like, I just, I was like, okay, I, I, I get it. And I, I know what happened, you know. So some bleeding had started that day, similar to the way it started the first time around. And so we're sitting there devastated. And I'll tell you what, like in my mind goes, and pardon my, but what the heck was the healing about? Like, why all of that for this? Okay? And I, and I begin, and listen, I'm not saying it's the right question. Like, I mean, I've read Job a lot. Where he's like, man, did you, did you do this, man? Like, did you set the stars in the sky? Like, I get all that. But in my heart, man, if I'm honest, I'm mad. But then tomorrow happens. And the next day. And the week after. And in the midst of that time, there's like three visits to the hospital. And every time, the baby's doing great. And Finley's in there just crushing life, man. Right? And now you know him, and he's here, right? But what happens is every checkpoint, right? Like, we get to 12 weeks, so like, oh my gosh, like, we're second trying, that maybe this will, and then we get to 20, and we, we get to see him for the first time. Like, and we get to gender, really just that form, and you're just like, wow, like, he's there. And then 24, and 28, and 32, and then 34, 36, 37, 38. And at 39, a child was born. And all of the anticipation, all of the hope that was welled up in man, is this going to actually come to pass? Like, will he be with us? Will we get to love this kid and rejoice in this kid and celebrate and invest in this kid? And week 39 comes and the baby is born. Now, if you're Israel, for a thousand years... You've lived in pain and in hardship and in wonder. Is this going to come? Like, God, are you going to show up? Will there be salvation? And then a child was born. That's what Advent is. That the son of David, that was prophesied, that was long awaited, the Messiah was born unto this earth. That people we pour everything into love and service of him the way I would with myself. So let's read that story, Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration of Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And all went out to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for him at the inn. Okay? All of this was poured into this little infant. The son, the child was born. The long-awaited prophesied Messiah was here, and people were to receive their new king. 
the king that would reign forever, the king that will trump any other king, the king that trumps any other idol that you or I or anyone in Israel's history, present or future will ever want to adore, that this king is better and reigns on his throne, sovereign Lord of the universe, all poured into a tiny little infant baby. That's what we celebrate. That's what Advent is. The coming of the son of David in a little child. Jesus, the true and greater David. Better than anything Israel could have hoped for. Better better than anything we could have thought of. David, right? A shepherd of, of sheep. Jesus, a shepherd of men. Okay? David, one whose victory over the enemy, right? Victory over the enemy. His victory was what was imputed and given to Israel who did not deserve it. Jesus' victory over the enemy at the cross, defeating Satan, sin, and death. His victory given to a people who do not deserve it. Jesus, the true and greater David. David, meant to be the righteous, perfect king for Israel, could not fulfill it. Jesus, the righteous, spotless, sacrificial lamb and king whose righteousness is given to us. At every level, the entire story of the Bible is, I mean, Jesus is better, and he's king. Okay. So what does this mean for us today as I wrap up? Um, why is this good news for all of us? Because it's good news, right? Why is this good news for all of us? It's because Jesus came to redeem. The son of David was about redeeming, was this hopeful anticipation something's going to happen. So what does this mean for us now? And we're going to give you four little things, and it all harkens back to what we get in Isaiah. But the first one is he redeems our mistakes. You look at the story, right, that all these instances where all these kings departed and left God behind. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. He redeems our story. He redeems our mistakes, and we make them all the time. But he will use them for his glory and your joy. Why? Because he is the wonderful counselor, right? When you go and you visit the counselor, right, that they they hear your life, they see your life, you pour everything out to them and they say, all right, well, let's let's see it like this and let's move this and like think about it this way, all that kind of, because Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He He redeems our mistakes. He redeems our identity. Only something God can do, right? That he, he redeems our identity. So all of this looking back to the past, like David, man, and all the lineage, you guys blew it. You weren't what you were supposed to be. And maybe that's what you feel this morning. It's not just mistakes. It's like to your core. Like, am I good enough? Does he love me? Do the people love me? Like, he redeems your identity. Why? Because he is mighty God. And only God can redeem the soul. Only God can forgive sin. So he is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. Third, he redeems our plight and invites us in. So we were headed a direction. He said, "Uh uh-uh, here's another option. Here's another way. Revelation 22, 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, Come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take water of life without 
price. He saw us going, and yet he invites us back. Why? Because he's the everlasting father that sees unto eternity, invites us into eternity, and as a good father, takes us from that which we know we're going wrong and puts us in the right path. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and lastly, he redeems our world because he is the prince of peace. And he will restore the brokenness and the, and the shame and the pain and the hurt and the silliness and the foolishness that is our world that destroys itself at every turn. Because he's the prince of peace. We constantly see this fulfillment of the son of David coming to bring life for all who would confess and know him. That his grace eternal lavishes and he will redeem this world. He is the son of David, Christ the King, made accessible in flesh by the advent, by the incarnation. Righteousness through the cross, eternity through the resurrection, and all of this in a tiny baby boy. And that's what we sing and celebrate today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.